Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, this is Richard. A listener of my show, Home On, reminded me recently that we can take a lot for granted when talking about smart home technology. My co-host, Adam, runs a company in the industry, and I've been working with this stuff for literally decades. So for this episode, we're going to pull back and talk about the basics. How do smart home products work? What are protocols, and why do they even exist? We'll take some time to define core industry jargon like scenes, routines, and color temperature. Hopefully there's something in here for everyone to learn. Hey everyone, I'm Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined as usual by my co-host Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Hey Richard. Hey, how's it going? Good. So today we're going to take a step back and talk about some of the basic concepts we sometimes steeped in this industry tend to take for granted. So should be a good discussion and kind of a return back to basics. Yeah, but before we do that, as usual, we have a question that I'm going to ask you, but this question doesn't come from me. This question comes from a listener to the show, Bob, who asks, and I guess this question will first go to you, what would cause you to replace a perfectly good working smart home device? And I know darn well, Adam, you and I are both guilty of doing this. I was going to say, I'm feeling a little called out by this question. (laughs) First of all, great question. And thank you, Bob, to sending in a question, because often we just write these questions. So appreciate that. So I think there are all different types of people. and, And we've actually done some studying into customer profiles and things like this. And I think one of the the profiles we identified for one of our customers was a technology upgrade person. So that would be somebody like Richard or myself, who when there is better technology, they will then upgrade. Think about people who get a new smartphone every year. You know, you take a perfectly good smartphone and you replace it with one with newer features, shinier things better camera, whatever. Now you're calling me out. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I just do the iPhone upgrade program and I I get a new phone every year. But in smart home, it can be a little bit more complicated, right? I am guilty of this recently. I replaced my perfectly good Ecobee 3 thermostats for the new shiny Ecobee premium. You know, not a simple just switch out kind of thing. I had to do installs and take the old ones off the wall. It wasn't horribly complicated, but it wasn't as simple as replacing a smartphone per se would be. So, you know, for me, when it comes to replacing smart home devices is like, is there a major technology or use case reason for that upgrade? particularly with matter coming down as well. I think that's something I'm being very considerate of. In current devices, I want to upgrade to things 
that will likely be matter compatible going forward. So, you know, I mentioned the Ecobee, that was a part of that equation, as well as I recently replaced my door locks with the Schlage Encode Plus that added a new feature in the Apple Home Keys. And also that device had a thread radio in it. So likely more matter friendly going forward. So I think that's probably the best answer, but you know, sometimes it's just the the new shiny thing too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to add one more thing to that. I agree with all of that. And I would probably parse a lot of what you said down into three main areas, better compatibility, better technology itself, like maybe more reliable or faster or what have you, and new features, things that it does that it didn't used to do. And I'm going to add one more to that list, which is more usable. I have, on more occasions than I can recount, swapped out a device with either a newer version of that device or a completely different device because what I had wasn't meeting my expectations or my partner's expectations for how it should work and how easy it should be to use. So to me, that usability factor, (laughs) surprise, surprise, is also a big element there. Yeah. Excellent. So if you want to submit a question to us, like Bob, uh, to open the show, you can send us a question using the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard. Before we dive into our discussion, Adam, I want to give a credit to a listener of Home On who asked me the question, hey, do you ever talk about just the very basic stuff? Maybe not everybody is as familiar as you are with everything. And a lot of times, he said, he'll get lost in the acronyms and the jargon and everything. And he's really just trying to figure out from the couple of devices that he already has, how to build out the smart home. But he can't do that when we're already making this assumption that we all know this stuff already. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And often, you know, we're pretty deep in terminology and initialisms and acronyms and all kinds of things. So absolutely Thank you to that listener for pointing that out and inspiring this, but also, you know, to listeners in the, that hear this today, like if there are other concepts or things you want us to dive into, you know, definitely reach out, you know, we're happy to explain things, go into further details where, where we need to. And, uh, it's a good reminder because I think often you're kind of living your own little bubble and you forget that, you know, maybe others may not have been around the space as long or, or understand all these things the way we do. So we wanted to start at truly the most basic level, uh, which is talk about kind of what our definition of a smart home is. Now, there's a lot of different terms that have been thrown around that are smart home adjacent, things like connected home, home automation, home control, IoT, or the Internet of Things. So I'll let you go first, 
Richard, but what do you kind of see the smart home as? I have the unfair advantage of having drafted a lot of the notes that we're working from here. So I'll try not to give too many spoilers, but I think of a smart home as a home that has products in it that are intended to work in somewhat of an autonomous fashion to make living in that home easier. Yeah, I would add to that also, you know, more comfortable, more convenient. And, you know, I would also say often I think something that can be confusing about smart home is the word smart. I think some people think of a smart home as something smarter than it actually is today. And I think the term in general has been somewhat aspirational that, you know, eventually we want to get to what I've heard dubbed as the conscious home, but something more anticipatory of needs, something more AI driven, less programming involved, less user intervention needed. And, you know, the reality is we're not there today. And so in my definition, very similar to Richard's, the ability to control the physical side of your home, whether that's lighting, water, entry, security, visual, things like that, having that connected with smart devices, cell phones, tablets, things like that, like Richard said, to to provide a better experience of, of living in that home. When you talked about what is smart, you know, I take that down to the device level too. I know on Home On, and sometimes on this show, I've talked about things like motion sensors because even that simple of a device can make a big difference in your experience in your home. And sometimes that simple device may be the best solution that doesn't necessarily need to be connected. I don't want people to assume that for a home to be smart, that means all your stuff is connected. Not always going to be the case. Yeah, I think part of that is being able to provide some sort of experience that you know you couldn't have without that technology. The motion sensor tied to a light is a great example. You know, we've done that in a number of places in our house and we love that. If those stopped working today, you know, my wife and I would go out and replace them. You know, I think that speaks to the enhancement of the home and how it brings convenience. So we want to kind of step through how do these things work and kind of talk through each point here. Wired and battery powered devices or accessories around your home can function autonomously, remotely, sometimes controlled by a system or another device. I think it's interesting to consider here that in this statement, we're kind of making the assumption that these smart devices require some sort of power. We could probably debate that. But I think generally, it's true that when people think of smart home products, they're powered in one way or another, either through wired electricity or through a battery. 
Now, I also wanted to point out you use the term accessories. This is a tricky area when you're trying to come up with lowercase letter descriptors, nouns that can describe the types of things that make up a smart home. And so unsurprisingly, the industry is all over the place. Sometimes they refer to these things as devices. Sometimes they refer to them as products. Sometimes they refer to them as accessories. Accessories is specifically the language that Apple introduced for HomeKit. It seems to be taking on, but not necessarily industry-wide. And devices can be confusing because, well, isn't my phone a device? Yeah. I think for me, the differentiation stands at how standalone is the device. Uh, here we go, using a term to define a term. But, you know, how standalone is the thing? Uh, to me, an accessory is used as part of a broader ecosystem and cannot stand alone versus a device can be added by itself and, and provide value. So very good point. We can talk about that more when we talk about communication technologies. But I think what communication technology it works with can be pretty core to whether or not it can stand alone. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And in that example, my motion sensing switch is a device. It's not an accessory because it's not something that supplements some other larger system. One thing that I did want to also call out here is, you know, we've talked about the idea of automation versus the idea of control. I think we've had that discussion in a past episode, actually. Automation being that things happen automatically in one way or another, and we'll discuss that a little bit more. But control in itself is also really useful. That's why we talk about things like keypads and remotes and just phone apps and things that allow you to explicitly control things in your home. So that's a key part of this as well. Smart home envelops all of that. Yeah, for sure. In terms of accessories or devices, these usually have some sort of function, whether that's on, dim, tilt, open, set a temperature, play, as well as properties, power status, dim level, temperature, power consumption. You know, in the HomeKit world, these are called characteristics, but think of it this way as like, what can you control about a device and what are the different states of it as well? Yeah. What does it know about itself? What does it know how to do? And what can it report on? What can it tell you about itself or about its environment? I think of those that way. And, and if you're from the programming world, you're looking at this and you're thinking, oh, I totally get this. It's an object. <laughs> which is a good analogy, if you know what I'm talking about. Right. And what can it change about its environment? So some can be very simple, on, off. Some can be way more complex, different levels, percentages, angles, all kinds of things. And some of those actions even have further attributes. Like, for example, if you're a media device and you know how to play stuff – well, then you need to know what thing to play. So if you receive a command that says play, that's not helpful unless you just stopped playing. 
So you need to know what to play. And so it can get even more complicated. Again, think objects. You're sending parameters with the command to that device to let it know the minute details that it needs to be able to enact on the command that you're sending it. So kind of the next one here is these devices have to have some way to communicate. Traditionally, it was more of a hardwired scenario. Today, in the modern world, often wirelessly, but it depends on what your devices are, what the system is, and what the constraints are to it. So a lot of my devices are wireless in my home, but I'd still have some things that are wired as well. And often, you know, bridges and other endpoints can be wired or have to be. But, you know, at the root of this is everything needs a way to communicate usually over the network or over its own protocol, which, again, we'll get into those further. I think a good analogy here is the old security system world. In earlier days, security systems were built by wiring a whole bunch of sensors all over your house to doors and windows and screens and glass to detect whether it was broken or not. And then those things all wired into a central brain that had an alarm hooked up to it. Nowadays, just like in the smart home, almost all of that's done wirelessly. The need for wires, because wireless technology has improved so much, has largely gone away. But there are still some products out there, and you've heard me talk about Insteon a ton of times, Insteon's a good example of a device that is, or a, a brand of devices that are designed to work both wirelessly and using signals that can actually run through the power lines themselves, which is pretty cool. So we kind of hinted at it earlier of wired or battery. I think that's a big part of it too, is that for a long time, even if when wireless was a thing, it did not make sense or from a power budget to power those things. You know, what good is a device that you have to replace the batteries in or charge it every five days? So I think that's where wireless has taken off is as there's been more battery friendly technologies that's allowed more devices to go wireless. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly with things like locks and other devices that it, it's, Hard to imagine a device like that being battery-powered. Shades is another great example. Ten years ago, a battery-powered shade in a residential home was a pipe dream. Yeah, for sure. So as far as the wireless communication goes, that's splintered into a lot of different types of radios and often different spectrums of communication. So some examples here are Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, 433, ultra wideband, and many, many others. So, yeah, this is one where our knowledge of this technology isn't necessarily going to do it justice for those who are really deep into the radio and frequency aspect of this. When we look at these things and we run through this, we're talking about these things based on their common names. Like Wi-Fi is actually a couple 
different wavelengths or, or spectrums that it can be used in, Bluetooth and ultra wideband. These all have specific values, like areas in the spectrum where they operate. We don't need to get mired in those details, but the point that I think is worth taking away from this is that as technology has evolved, more and more of these different ways of communicating wirelessly have evolved or cropped up. And that splintering has started to create the problem that we've seen in, not started, but really created the problem that we've seen in the smart home, which is either everybody doing their own thing or people kind of circling around a couple different camps or even just the general problem that, oh, well, guess what? If something is Bluetooth, then unless it also has a radio to communicate with Wi-Fi, it can't communicate with the Wi-Fi things. So that creates problems. So one thing to comment on here is you might wonder, okay, well, then why doesn't everybody just use Wi-Fi? People choose different spectrums and radios for different applications, and different ones have different advantages and disadvantages. You know, Wi-Fi at the higher um, gigahertz and, and megahertz levels is more prone to interference. Others are, you know, can get you more range because they are operating at a lower frequency um, where there's more likely to penetrate walls or other materials. So it's fairly complicated and everybody's going to have their own kind of reasons. Like we said earlier, though, you know, ability to stand alone comes with some of these choices. So if you have an accessory that works with Wi-Fi, you know, that's going to work with your common Wi-Fi router in your home. Bluetooth, you're going to need some sort of gateway um, whether that's a mobile phone or a dedicated hub or bridge. And so kind of early on, there were some of these players that were looking to bring these hubs together that had a bunch of the different kinds of radios in it. And they're like, oh, we're just going to bridge them all together. I think that's where, you know, things have evolved. Some protocols have won, you know, some different technologies have won over others. Some are more common than others. And um, we're seeing some consolidation in what, you know, people are using going forward. Yeah, for sure. You just said the P word. We should probably dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So so protocols, I feel like if we really wanted to get into this topic, we'd be teaching like a, um, a network layer discussion of, of what things operate at what levels. But you know, when we talk about spectrums, that's like physical layer type communication. So how are these things communicating over the air? Protocols are kind of like the language that they're speaking. So some of these actually operate like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi both operate in the 2.4 gigahertz standard, but they're talking different languages. So the different protocols and standards are how these communicate and kind of what set of standards and language are they using to communicate over that wireless spectrum. I know that that can sound kind of foreign, like confusing. What do you mean, 
how to communicate wirelessly or how to communicate over these different spectrums. Spectrums? Spectra? Uh, anyway. So, you know, think of it like this. Okay, I'm a device I know how to turn on. How do you tell me to turn on? It's not like you can just send I mean, maybe you could if somebody set it up to work this way, but generally these devices don't work by you just sending a message that says, turn on, and it knows how to respond to that, written in English or in Farsi or through five tones with accompanying colors. You need some language established that the device knows how to speak. So generally that protocol defines that language. It says, I know that when you say this, that means I'm going to turn on. I know that when you ask me such and such, I'm going to provide back to you my power status. That's what we're talking about. What specific things, what specific information gets sent to a device to make it do stuff and to ask it questions. Yeah. And I think also in this layer is... Is this a one-way street or a two-way street, too? Because like we have customers who have legacy stuff that are one-way. So you can only broadcast messages. You can tell it to do something, but you have no way to receive a status back that it actually did it. And that's where things like Thread have come into play is with Thread, they not only wanted a battery-friendly wireless mesh standard, which there's another term we're going to dig into later, but they also wanted something that was IP-based, um, so internet protocol-based, just like web traffic and technologies, and that could have a full two-way communication um, with all of those end devices. So you could send full commands and know whether or not they were received. All right, so you said the S word, so let's talk about that. And I'm going to assert that so far we've been talking about things that some folks might call standards, but really they're all standards with a small s. These are things that have become standard in the industry, say Thread, ZigBee, Z-Wave, Bluetooth. They each have been perceived as standards but none of them is really the standard that anyone is either obligated, like ISO stuff, or potentially encouraged to support because otherwise consumers aren't interested. And as a result, we've ended up with everybody trying to, oh, well, I can come up with a better standard than this other company because – this standard that already is out there doesn't do this thing that I need it to do. And that's partly why we end up with all of this stuff and partly why some companies decide to spin their own. So before we talk about companies spinning their own, I do want to use Wi-Fi as a good example of, of how this is maintained. So if you want to put out a product that uses Wi-Fi to communicate, you don't actually need to do anything. You don't need to get it certified. You know, you need to put a Wi-Fi module in your device and you're good to go. You might be doing some things that aren't proper or the right way to do things, but essentially there's no governing body that says you can't do that. 
there is a alliance called the Wi-Fi Alliance, which maintains the Wi-Fi standard. So when you see new things like Wi-Fi 6 and all the 802.11 ABGN, you know, standards, they are the body that determines those new standards, promotes new features, things like that. You can be a member of the Wi-Fi Alliance and they do have a process where you can certify your device and anything that you see that Wi-Fi logo on the device or the packaging means that it's been certified. So there is a, a certification for that. That means you're a good citizen. You're doing everything the right way. They're going to test against that. But at least in that standard, you don't actually have to be certified. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know that I want to go too much further down that track because there are probably varying degrees of nuance with every example we could come up with there, with the other things that we've talked about that one might think of as a standard. Right. And, and you know, I guess the, the counter example are things like Thread or Zigbee or Z-Wave do have a rigid standards board and every device has to be certified to use it. So They do, but they're not the industry standards. Right. Per se, to the extent that, say, Underwriter Labs is for electrical devices in Northern America. Right. So you did say earlier, you know, sometimes manufacturers choose to go rogue and have various reasons to do that where they just create their own protocol. And I think this comes from a certain desire to have a level of control. They might be using some of the same frequencies as other technologies, but they want to control the whole stack of how those communications happen. And so they'll develop their own protocol. You mentioned Insteon as an example. Lutron's Clear Connect, I think, is, is a great example of something that's really solid. I believe it runs on 433 megahertz. But manufacturers will want to have kind of that full end-to-end control. It means nobody else can talk on there. They have their own language. It's likely proprietary. And they control all of it. And you mentioned this. One of the reasons you might do that is that you might have a better way of handling your specific hardware that the other standards or protocols don't necessarily already support. Another reason I might imagine is that some of these standards might have costs associated with them, whether they're licensing costs or costs for specific chips or hardware. Spinning something up yourself helps to avoid that. Yeah. The other thing we wanted to talk about is when auxiliary devices need to be brought into the mix. So I mentioned earlier this concept of standalone devices, which is something that speaks like a Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, can talk to common devices over common protocols. And then others that don't speak those common protocols, maybe they use Zigbee's, Z-Wave, Thread, and they need a bridge or a hub to talk over the, that network. So, Richard, do you want to talk a little bit about, about our favorite topics of bridges and hubs? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, in this context, I think the intent is the same. Think about your phone. Your phone knows how to speak Wi-Fi. It knows how to speak Bluetooth. And I'm using that vernacular very, very loosely. But with those two technologies, your phone can very likely connect to and directly communicate with a lot of different smart home products in your home or that you can buy off the shelf. But if any manufacturer is using anything other than that, Z-Wave, ZigBee, if they're using Instion, for example, you mentioned Lutron's Clear Connect. If you have some 433-controlled wireless lines, your phone can't control them. It has no visibility to them whatsoever because it's not Wi-Fi and it's not Bluetooth. And so that's really the purpose in this context for those bridges or hubs is to allow communication over your network to these other things that already know how to communicate. I mean, Zigbee stuff doesn't need your network to communicate with each other. Instion stuff doesn't need your network to communicate with each other. It just needs it so that you can communicate with it from your phone or from a computer on your network, something like that. Now, that's a bit of a sidebar before getting to the question that you asked, which is bridges versus hubs. We actually did a really thorough discussion of this that I want to refer people back to episode 180 long time ago, where we talked about bridges and hubs and the difference between them. And essentially, I think of it as a bridge is solely serving the purpose of making that connection that I just talked about, getting your non-Wi-Fi and Bluetooth devices onto your network, getting your Bluetooth devices even potentially onto your network. A hub is what our friend Mike Wolf has historically referred to as a big box of radios. It's typically a box that has some brains in it and radios that can talk to, in many cases, multiple different wireless technologies outside of the normal Wi-Fi stuff. Yeah, and I would say the hub's are less common. I mean, there's still a couple big examples of it. I would say more often you'd see a proprietary bridge. Ultimately, the goal of a bridge is to bridge to the internet. So whether that's via Wi-Fi or Ethernet, it has a way to get not only onto your network to talk to other devices, but often to the broader internet to get more control and other features. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't help that manufacturers have had a bad habit of using these terms interchangeably over the years, only more recently getting more to the point where the bridge does the bridging, the hub has brains and radios. The next topic to discuss is ecosystems. And this is where your your Amazon, your Google your home kit from Apple, you know, these ecosystems and standards are kind of found. So 
these are proprietary ecosystems that have been created by big companies to allow different devices to talk and utilize some of their own technologies, devices, and things like that. So during the 2010s era to 2020, it was more common that these three players were trying to go and build their own efforts and had their own kind of siloed versions of this. It was often around voice assistants and the ecosystems they were trying to build around their own voice assistants. And ultimately I think we'll look back on those as a failed effort because no one party got enough ground to dominate the market. And so that's why are now working towards the matter standard, which is going to be our next topic. But anything more on these ecosystems, Richard? Yeah, I think the thing to keep in mind with this is that these companies, Amazon, Google, and Apple, and to some extent you might lump Samsung into this now, these are not companies that are coming out with stuff that competes with everything that we just talked about. These are companies that are trying to help you and don't consider that altruistic. They have their own reasons for wanting to do that. But to help you use a bunch of devices, perhaps from a bunch of different companies, maybe even using a bunch of different technologies and be able to use them all together. So you may have a light bulb from one manufacturer, a switch from another manufacturer, and a thermostat from yet another, and come up with creative ways that you could use all those things together in Amazon's ecosystem, in your Google Home, or in your Apple HomeKit environment. I would also add that like, this is sort of a software layer that allows devices to interact with each other. So even... Things like Insteon, I think, live at this layer too, which is like, not only how do you talk to the, the end devices, but how do you orchestrate communication between larger sets of them? How do they work together? Things like that. And for the manufacturer, this means that if you're making a Wi-Fi device, uh, I think I know somebody that makes Wi-Fi devices. Just a couple. Those Wi-Fi devices... That's great. They're Wi-Fi. But that doesn't mean simply because Amazon, Google, and Apple's ecosystems can all work with Wi-Fi devices that your device is automatically going to work with their ecosystems. You need to go through a certification process with each of those companies to prove to them that you've added the extra layer, done the extra work in your software and, in some cases, hardware development to ensure that it does work and it does provide the experience that those companies are expecting from their partners. Yeah, and I think the end goal ultimately here is kind of back to our original definition is sort of that one plus one is more than two kind of thing where you can do automation, you can make broader scenes, all things we're going to talk about further but see how this conversation builds upon itself. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can create something more than just what the individual devices can do on their own. Yeah. Now, we've talked about matter in the past. I don't know. Do we need to dive much more into that? 
I'll just touch on it briefly, which is to say that what their goal is here is to have a broader level standard that devices can interact with each other in a way that none of those ecosystems were able to do. And so each of those players are still going to be involved and they're still going to have their own ecosystems. But, you know, really this effort was around finding a common protocol and a common set of development for end manufacturers like us so that they didn't have to do that effort three, four, five, six times. I think there was really a barrier to entry as there was more and more different ecosystems out there that was just creating an unrealistic set of expectations and effort involved from a manufacturer's perspective to support all of these different things and, you know, how they change. You know, we were just talking about this from a documentation standpoint that how you interact with some of these ecosystems is constantly changing. So the goal of matter, I think, is to really simplify a lot of that at the device level, at the user level, and create a more common standard for everybody to help move the industry forward. And I would argue that if this goes where they're promising it will and where I hope it will, this will probably be that UL equivalency in the smart home space. This will probably be that industry standard with a capital S that any manufacturer producing smart home products is going to strive to get or be compliant with. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break in the event of any sponsors, and then we'll return with some more smart home definitions. Everyone says that starting a podcast is easy, but let me tell you, making a podcast is hard work. That's where today's sponsor, Lightning Pod, comes in. If you have a podcast or you want to start one, then you should check them out. They can help you with every step of the podcast production process. We've been working with Lightning Pod founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. Eric currently helps us with editing and copywriting, but he's also available to help your podcast with recording, monetization, website design, and more. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. All experience levels are welcome, so whether you're a veteran podcaster or a total newbie, you should check them out. That's lightningpod.fm. When we talk about smart home stuff, we use a lot of jargon. We use a lot of terms that we take for granted. And I wanted to, as part of this effort to step back, take a look at some of those things that come up constantly, that we refer to constantly, and very rarely take the time to actually define, to say what these things mean while we're talking about them, just assuming everybody knows what these things are. And the first one I want to bring up is mesh. Now, mesh is a method of communicating between devices that lets groups of devices talk to and through each other. And by that, what I mean is that in addition to devices talking to each other, they can also relay messages to other devices in the group. So think of 
a situation where you have a point-to-point communication between two devices. One talks to the other. Now let's say the third one is farther away and there's no way that it would be able to communicate with the first one because it's too far from the first one. But that second one's right in the middle. So with meshing and peer-to-peer, really this is in this example, this is peer-to-peer technology, the first one can talk to the second one. The second one can relay the message to the third one that's further away. And now you have the ability for these three devices to talk together, even though they're not all in close proximity to all of the others in the group. So in that example, that helps provide distance. It helps you communicate further away to other devices. Now let's add one more device into that mix. Now let's say I have two devices in the middle, one at one end, two in the middle, and one at the other end. The first one says something, the second and third one in the middle, both hear it and forward the message on to whoever's listening. And in this case, that's number four, the one on the far end. You just doubled the chances that you're going to be able to communicate out to the one at the far end. You just made your network more robust by doing that. And furthermore, and here's the real power, if one of those devices in the middle, for some reason, goes offline or doesn't hear the message, the other one is still going to get the message and pass it on. So think of this, keep adding points into this network, and think of how reliable it would be if you end up in this situation where you can repeat messages to a bunch of other devices and a bunch of other nodes and ensure that it's going to be heard and it's probably going to be heard further away than it ever could be if you just had the two devices talking to each other. That's really the benefit of Mesh. Now, before we stop for a little discussion, one more thing. You hear about this with regard to networking. Wi-Fi Mesh Network is a whole level more confusing than what I just talked about. But this is also useful just in devices themselves, like other protocols like Instion. I believe the – well, actually, I know that the Leviton stuff that I just talked about recently is Mesh. There's some Bluetooth Mesh that never really got broadly adopted. So this works not just in Wi-Fi but also in smart home device protocols themselves. Yep, Z-Wave, Zigbee, and I think some good example devices were, you know, things like lighting where you might have a, a light bulb that's off in a corner that would be hard to reach for other devices and when you add more and more lights to a home, you're creating more and more paths for things to get to. Another one is blinds and shades. It doesn't make sense to have everything connect to one central hub and all communicate. You know, that can be challenging not only with different building materials, but all kinds of the things we talked about with that are challenging in wireless networking. So a mesh gives you ability to get to harder to reach points in the home. Yeah, absolutely. 
Another thing I want to talk about is cloud. We had an entire episode where we did talk about cloud technology in the smart home. That's episode 208, and we'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Basically, the cloud means you're processing on someone else's network. Someone else's computer on someone else's network is doing the work. As an opposite of that, you hear people talk about edge, computing on the edge or processing on the edge. That just means it's local. That just means that the device itself or something in your home is actually doing that processing, is running those schedules or what what have you. But the power of the cloud is that it eliminates the need for an in-home computer or the hubs that we talked about to do the logic, to actually run the smart home, to keep track of what time it is and turn things on and off on your command. Yeah. In development, we often talk about the source of truth. And so when cloud is involved, often that remote server in the cloud can be the source of truth, which, like you said, requires less processing power on the edge device, as well as often can lessen the costs of the system overall, because you're able to push those costs to the cloud, which can be much more affordable. So like Richard said, we can go into, listen to that previous episode to get all the pros and cons of cloud being involved. But in the context of smart home, that's usually where, where cloud is involved. And I guess also worth noting that some of today's ecosystems like Google or Amazon require you to use the cloud to even connect to those. So you have to have some sort of path to the internet and those use an integration known as cloud to cloud. So rather than your devices talking directly to Amazon, your devices are talking to your server in the cloud, which is then talking to Amazon's cloud. So that's where where cloud is involved in smart home. Now, when we talk about smart home, it should be easy, right? If you have dozens of devices in your home, you don't want to have to go through and set this to 50% and set that to 20% and turn this off and turn that on every time you're changing the look of the lights in your home or changing something in your home. That'd be a big hassle. So the industry mechanism for bundling a bunch of stuff together like that to ultimately be executed together, maybe as one command, is called a scene. And when you create a scene, you're basically creating a set of preset values or commands for one or more accessories. So why do you do this? Well, it may be more convenient to use a nice term like, say, bedtime to turn on or turn off a couple of devices around your home. It's also easier than having to spit out the commands or trigger the things on your phone to do all those things individually. The idea is that it can be repeated and called up on demand whenever you want. So some examples. I just gave you a bedtime example. A bedtime scene could do something like turn off the television, set all or most of the lights around you to off 
and lock the door. The thing to get out of that example is that scenes don't have to be like devices. You can bundle all kinds of different things into a scene together and send individual commands to each of them so that you're ending up with the same end result, but you're not doing the same thing with every single device. Yep. Almost exactly that. We have a scene called Goodnight Chewy, which is the name of our dog, which is when we would put the dog to bed when we're headed up to bed. <laughs> and like you said, it would turn off all the lights. It would turn on a fan for, you know, background noise. And then it would actually speak a command that would say, good night, Chewy. So kind of fun, but it, it also gives you one command or one phrase you can use to do all those things at once. Nearly every system that you would use to control your smart home has some mechanism like this. Ironically, I think Amazon does not, but that's a different issue that we can talk about at some other time. But the idea, again, being this is something repeated. So another example might be sunset. At sunset, you might turn on a few lights around your house, just like a timer. But the idea is that you're creating multiple things happening simultaneously. Now, some systems may limit your scenes to a specific room. Others may allow you to have scenes with devices across your entire home. So things in multiple rooms, really with that bedtime scene, you probably have things happening all over the place. Yep. The next thing, and I almost jumped here prematurely, is the concept of a routine or an automation. Different systems use these terms interchangeably. So we'll talk about them as one thing, but they might have different capabilities depending on the system that you have. The general idea is that one or more actions can occur as the result of some trigger. So that trigger may be something happening in your home, detected by a motion sensor. It could be the time of day. It could be that the sun just set. Ooh, there's a useful thing for that. We'll call that out in a minute. It could be that you turned on a light. And in turning on a light, you want some other stuff to happen too. So actions and triggers. The trigger can be any variety of things. Proximity, I just got close to the house. Adam just got home. That's something that Smart Things and HomeKit enables. I think you use that one, don't you? Yeah. The, the last person just left the house, so it can also be kind of multifaceted like that. So if one person leaves, it doesn't do anything. But if both of the people that it's tracking leave, then do something. You know, I think this is also where these can be self-contained and kind of run on their own, or they can be part of a broader ecosystem. And as we talked about earlier, I think this is really one of the opportunities for innovation and more smarts. Right now, these are often very user-driven, where you're having to almost programmatically specify all the details of the automation or the routine that you want done. And I think this is where you'll see some innovation in the future, where these things can 
either be suggested and then approved or just happen or learned by, you know, normal behaviors. Yeah. And I've seen some good examples of apps trying to recommend things based on your behaviors. I know that this is something that Amazon has been dedicating a lot of time on. Also, you would probably notice in HomeKit that HomeKit makes some recommendations when you create new devices or add new devices that, hey, it may make sense to do this with this device or include this sensor in this thing that you're already doing in this room. So there are definitely ways to make that easier. I think this is one of the most powerful and most complicated parts of home automation. Because as you said, right now, you got to set all this stuff up yourself for the most part. Now, I mentioned the sunset scene and I was, you know, not to get too cute about that, but just creating a sunset scene isn't automatically going to turn the lights off when the sun sets. You just happen to create a scene that does turn lights on and it's called sunset. But if you want to turn that on automatically, then you would create a routine or an automation. And that routine or automation, maybe also called sunset, would then, at the point of sunset for your location, trigger the scene that you called sunset. That could get confusing, so be careful what you name things. (laughs) But the idea being that routines can trigger scenes And here's where you can get really, really powerful. Let's talk about some lighting stuff because I'm a big lighting geek. Two things I wanted to cover with lighting. One is color temperature. We talk about color temperature all the time and we probably don't do it much justice. And I would argue that the lighting industry in general, starting from the days of those curly Q fluorescent bulbs that we all used. Well, I tried not to use, but that many of us used for years did a really bad job at educating people on what color temperature is. And then LEDs came out and built on that really bad framework of customers not knowing what this means. So we take this for granted Let's break it down a little bit. Generally, color temperature refers to the color of white that a light gives off. Now, the color of white, what are you talking about? Just like paint, white is not white when it comes to lighting. There are many different shades of white. And in lighting, they're measured on what's known as the Kelvin scale. And you think about these as the temperature of the light, the color temperature. Kelvin is a measurement of temperature. Ranges from warm to cool. Warm tones are generally more yellow in nature. And cool tones are generally more blue in nature. Typically, 2700 is warm or sometimes it's called soft. 
2700K is what you think of as the traditional interior residential lighting color. It's that warm glow that you would have from a lamp that you might have on in your living room. 5000 or 5000K, oftentimes referred to as daylight, is more similar to the light coming from the sun. And you might think, what are you talking about? The sun is yellow when you look at it. A, don't look at the sun. (laughs) But B, if you're looking at things that are lit by the sun, a 5,000 Kelvin or daylight bulb is going to make an object look more similar to the way it looks when it's lit by daylight, by sunlight, than it does if it's lit by a traditional interior bulb. The problem is there's no standard for how you name these things. So retailers and manufacturers have used their, I'm going to put this in air quotes, best judgment to come up with terms that they think their customers will understand. And they've all done it a little independently. We have more or less landed on the idea of 2700 being considered warm, but sometimes it's called soft. Sometimes warm and soft have higher values in that. It can go up to maybe 35K. So between 2700 and 35K, you might hear people refer to it as warm, soft, bright, even cool can somehow get into that mix because technically 3,500 is getting more into that cool range. So it's confusing as anything. And Adam, I don't know what your experience is when you go into big box stores or wherever you buy bulbs, but let's say go to Walmart and then go to Home Depot And I'm pretty confident you're going to find different labels on the 2,700 bulbs if they even sell 2,700 bulbs because Store X may decide that, oh, no, our customers want 3,000 bulbs for no apparent reason. Yeah, it's incredibly inconsistent. And for us, we try to just buy the same type of bulbs, you know, over and over again. But it's not always that easy. The other thing I wanted to clarify, too, so you said color temperature is different levels of white. This is totally different from being able to change the color of your lights. Also in the mix there is bulbs that allow you to change the color where you can do purples and orange and blues and, you know, whatever. This is just different types of white. So those are two totally different things. Yeah, and you can just buy a plain old bulb like a 2700 Kelvin warm white light bulb, or you can buy a white tunable bulb, which is one that will give you this varying range of whites, or you can buy bulbs that do white tuning and color changing. And there's even, sadly, a range of bulbs that do color changing, but a really bad job at white tuning. They're really only intended for color, not for different tones of white. So very confusing. 
My general rule, like you said, try to pick one and go with it, or at least in the same space. You may find that you prefer different types of lighting in different spaces. Typically, warm light is good for living spaces, like living rooms, family rooms, bedrooms. Cooler light is better for work areas, like basements, garages, maybe an office, depending on your preference. Kitchens and bathrooms sometimes more typically use 3,000 rather than 2,700. But a lot of this is up to preference, what you feel comfortable with. I'm going to warn you, if I ever drive by your house and see a lamp in your living room with a daylight 5,000 Kelvin light bulb in it, I will make fun of you. Fair game? Fair game. All right. And then finally, I wanted to talk about an obscure topic that we, again, just take for granted, ramping. Ramping is the idea of gradually dimming or brightening a light. And why do you care? Well, a lot of smart switches and even smart bulbs have the ability to do this inherently In the old days, you flipped a switch, the light turned on dramatically, right away, boom, full on. Then we went to those awful compact fluorescents and they took forever to come on. I guess that's a form of ramping that was less intentional than by technical limitation. But today with an LED bulb, when you turn an LED bulb on, oftentimes it will dim up, particularly if it's a smart bulb, and then dim down if it's a smart bulb, when you turn it off. Similarly, some smart systems allow you to manage that, to say, I want this bulb to go from full off to full bright in three seconds and get a really nice effect as you turn lights on. That's called the ramp rate, where you can adjust how quickly something turns on or off. And even a dumb motion sensor switch that you can buy from Lutron has capabilities like this that you can adjust. So this is more common than you might know. And something I think we're going to see more and more of just gives a a really, I think, classy, distinguished look to smart home actions. Awesome. Well, good discussion here, and uh, hopefully this was helpful for listeners to understand some of the jargon and some of the terms we throw around. And, um, you know, if you have requests for other things you want us to talk about, please reach out and we'd be happy to do this again and go into further depth in, in other things we might just casually mention and totally not explain in the future. <laughs> hopefully not too much of that. Adam, do you have time for a question from a listener? Because we have one. Absolutely. All right. Well, we have a question from Dan. And Dan says, we use Lutron Caseta switches and lamp modules. Is there any way to have the Philips Hue bulbs on Caseta switches and Google Home not turn off the bulbs when we say turn off the lights? So understanding this setup a little bit, lamps have smart bulbs in them. Those lamps are then plugged into Caseta or maybe controlled by Caseta wall switches or lamp modules. 
And then they're using Google Home to control everything. And because Google Home would automatically identify those things as lights, when you say turn off the lights to your Google Assistant, it's going to turn off all of those. So how do you get around that? Before you give your official answer, I want to give my answer, which may not be exactly what Dan was looking for. With controllable light bulbs like Philips Hue, you often do not want the power to be shut off from them, um, which is, I think, what makes this complicated. My favorite solution for this particularly is the Lutron Aurora Smart Dimmer Switch. So this is a genius product that Lutron came out with a few years ago that goes over your standard flip toggle switch. And it keeps the light switch flipped in an on position and locked that way. This was an age-old problem. Spouses, partners, whatever, would always flip off the light switch and then you lose control of your smart bulbs. And so they made sure you can always do this. And on top of it, it has a dimming control and on-off control. So I use this in a lot of places in my house where I have Hue light bulbs installed and it works really well for this type of scenario, ensuring that things are never turned off at the power level. That is a very good way of doing that. And it's funny, I just recommended that very device for a similar scenario on the last episode of Home On that I just recorded. <laughs> so it's it's a product that I like a lot, and I think it does a, a good job with that. I don't fully understand. I, I know, Dan, I should probably dig a little bit more to understand why they have this kind of daisy-chained smart home thing going on with smart bulbs on top of smart switches. But his use case is, as I understand it, for the kids, that they're using the bulbs really just for color control, and they use them for a bedtime routine. So the lamps are on, and when they're on, they're green, they can leave the bed. When it's yellow, you can read, and when it's red, it's time to go to sleep. But then they still want the ability to turn it off Maybe because they had everything else on Caseta. I'm not entirely sure about why they had that extra Caseta layer there. In any event, the answer here to how you keep these things out of your turning the lights off process or command is to create your own custom routine triggered by the phrase, turn off the lights. And that will override what Google Assistant wants to do by default. So if you create a routine, have it triggered by the phrase, turn off the lights or turn off lights, maybe have both of them in there so that it's flexible, then you can identify which things it would control and what action it should take on them. It can either leave them be or it can turn them off. And you can individually set those up. Additionally, I believe you can even associate that command with a specific device so that it knows that when you're talking to this device, that's what you mean. So that's how you would 
solve this particular problem. I have to say I'm impressed, Adam. You went further and untangled the problem. You you were the better business analyst here than I was. Yeah, I would say add less layers for possible uh you know, this going smoother. I would also suggest maybe picking a phrase other than turn off the lights because that is more likely to clash with other phrases or built-in phrases. Right. I think the intent was that if they did that turn off the lights like they normally would, it's just like the normal, hey, I'm telling you, turn off the lights. It's everything else. They, they want it to work for everything else, just not for these things. Yeah. I, I just think it's probably more likely to be buggy or cause issues. And if you can have a distinct phrase like it's bedtime or something like that, that doesn't conflict with built in phrases, um, more likely chance of success. Yeah. Agree. All right. Well, if you want to send us a question to answer at the end of the show, you can do that by sending it our way with the hashtag ask smart home show. And we'll pick a question just like Dan's to include in each show. All right, Adam. Thanks again. As always, where can people find you if they want to find out more about what you're up to these days? You can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice or everything my company is up to at ConnectSense.com. How about you, Richard? Again, on Twitter at Richard Gunther and over at TheDigitalMediaZone.com. Of course, the Smart Home Show is part of Technology.fm, which is a great collection of tech podcasts that includes Home Tech FM, The Spoon Podcast, and my other show, Home On. And you can go to our site, smarthome.fm, to find our show notes and details for each episode. If you have feedback, you can send it to feedback at smarthome.fm. Find us everywhere you look for podcasts and do us a favor. Leave us a rating or review, or more importantly, tell a friend about the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening.